Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department at the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Fertile Ground, Philosophy in Ancient Mesopotamia. Almost as soon as the History of Philosophy podcast launched, listeners were getting in touch to say that this supposedly gapless series managed to leave an enormous gap before its very first episode. It should not have started with Thales and the other earliest pre-Socratics, who wrote in Greek and lived on the coast of Asia Minor. The history of philosophy, in fact, began with still more ancient civilizations, which were in part responsible for inspiring those pre-Socratics. A series on Africana philosophy provides the perfect opportunity to fill this gap as we tackle the philosophy of ancient Egypt. There's no doubt that Greek philosophers were powerfully influenced by Egyptian ideas. For proof, you need to only read Plato's dialogue Phaedrus, which talks about the invention of writing by the Egyptian god Thoth, or the retelling of the myth of Iris and Osiris by the later ancient Platonist Plutarch. But, as the Greeks knew full well, Egypt was not the only older civilization with a tradition of writing and science. Mesopotamia, meaning the region between the two rivers, namely the Tigris and Euphrates in modern-day Iraq, is often given credit for being the place where writing was invented, Plato's opinion notwithstanding. So if, while bearing in mind our archaeology-based speculations about Stone Age humans last time, we ask when the earliest recorded philosophy was written, Mesopotamia looks like a good candidate alongside Egypt. You presumably won't need to glance at a map to notice that Mesopotamia is not in Africa, but we're still going to spend a whole episode on it, not only for the sake of some long-overdue gap-filling, but also as context for our look at Egypt. These two ancient cultures were in contact and even competition with one another. We read of Egyptian scholars present at Mesopotamian courts, and as we will show, the two cultures produced some of the same sorts of texts. Historians generally place the beginning of writing in both cultures over 5,000 years ago in the latter half of the 4th millennium BC. Though it has been common to give the prize for innovation to Mesopotamia, or more specifically, to ancient Sumer, it remains within the realm of possibility that writing in Egypt is equally old, or even older. Then too, it's not as if writing was invented only once. We know that it was born independently in China and among the Mayans of Mesoamerica. In the case at hand, although it is possible that writing in ancient Egypt is the product of Sumerian influence, the great difference between the cuneiform script invented by the Sumerians with its patterns of wedges and Egyptian hieroglyphs with their pictorial character has led some to suspect that the Egyptians may have invented writing independently. Whatever the case may be, what we can say with certainty is that our earliest examples of writing all come from the area known as the Fertile Crescent, a term that, in its broadest usage, covers both Mesopotamia and the Nile Valley in Egypt. It makes sense to look within this region for our earliest examples of the writing of philosophy. A number of different kinds of texts survive in cuneiform, produced not just in Mesopotamia, but also nearby regions, such as Syria. These include myths and epics, including most famously the story of Gilgamesh, law codes, notably the law code of Hammurabi, works on various kinds of omens, including dreams and astrological omens, lists of words in Sumerian and Akkadian, poems of lament, and more practical texts which tell us about commerce and things like the use of measurement in these long-ago societies. It's fascinating stuff, enough so that there is a small industry of academics who devote their whole career to studying this culture. 
But is any of it philosophy? Well, one of those academics, Marc van de Meerup, recently published a book called Philosophy Before the Greeks, The Pursuit of Truth in Ancient Babylonia, in which he claims that we can look to Mesopotamia for the only well-documented system of philosophy before the Greeks known to us. Van de Meerup's only seems out of place to us, since, as we'll be arguing in the coming episodes, much Egyptian thought has just as good a claim to the title Philosophy Before the Greeks, but let's leave that aside and evaluate the case he makes for a distinctively Babylonian philosophy. He moves through several of the textual genres we just mentioned, beginning with what seems least promising, lists of words. At first glance, at least if the person doing the glancing can read cuneiform script, the clay tablets on which these lists are recorded might look like the homework of students who were learning to write or studying for a vocabulary quiz. But this is to underestimate the ambition of the scribes who noted down these words. For one thing, even the preserved number of tablets runs into the thousands. The original number of tablets must have been staggering. For another, we need to know that Sumerian died out as a living language long before it died out as a written language. Beginning in the first half of the second millennium BC, it served a purely literary purpose, like Latin and medieval Europe. Thus, the tablets were guides to usage for speakers of Akkadian, not native Sumerian speakers. Finally, there is the comprehensiveness of the word lists. Van de Mirup notes that they seem to have been trying to record all known Sumerian words, and some more words besides that were simply invented by the scribes. As he puts it, the aim was to keep together the entirety of Sumerian and Akkadian wisdom and lexical texts were an integral part of that encyclopedic project. He next moves on to two other kinds of lists which record omens and laws. Omens were sometimes based on observations of the heavens. For instance, if at Venus's rising the red star enters into it, the king's son will seize the throne. But they could also be in every sense of the word mundane. A medical man might infer the likely fate of his client based on objects seen in the street on the way to the sick house. Van de Mirup emphasizes that the entries in these texts always have an if-then structure, which is shared by the Babylonian law codes. Thus, just as if Venus rises, then the king's son will stage a coup, so Hammurabi writes, if a man commits murder, then they shall kill that man. This structural similarity is a clue to a deeper parallel. For the Babylonians, gods ruled the universe much as Hammurabi ruled over his people, and the omens they recorded were a record of that divine rule. Indeed, omens were sometimes simply called decisions, that is, decisions made by the gods. When you see the rising of a planet at a certain time, note the shape of the liver from a sacrificed sheep, or look to see which way smoke will drift, you are not witnessing the cause of a future event, but a sign given to us by the gods. We are told that the liver is the mirror of heaven, while the heavens themselves were said to be like writing that indicates the gods' will, and in fact, to have first been set in order by the gods. The beginning of one of the more important astrological texts, entitled Enuma Anu Enlil, reads, When Anu, Enlil, and Ea, the great gods, by their firm counsel established the designs of heaven and earth, and also established that the creation of the day and the renewal of the month for humankind to see were in the hands of the great gods. Then they saw the sun in his gate, and they made him appear regularly in the midst of heaven and earth. All this suggests that the Babylonians saw strong parallels between divine and human justice, even if they also frequently spoke of their gods as willful 
and unpredictable sources of unprovoked misery in the form of plagues and other natural catastrophes. Moreover, and this is really van der Merup's driving concern, the lists of words, omens, and laws are all contexts to operate within the logic of systems of science. We already mentioned that invented words appear in the vocabulary lists. He argues similarly that a law code like Hammurabi's was not really used in concrete legal situations, and that the omens were not based on actually observed events. Rather, the scribes were led by the internal logic of language, by intuitive reasoning and wordplay. This interpretation is perhaps strongest when it comes to the question of celestial omens. Here, van der Merup's judgment is echoed by Francesca Rochberg, an expert on this topic. She too points out that the listed omens include signs that cannot possibly have been observed by the Babylonians. We are told, for example, what it means when the sun comes out in the middle of the night. Though unbeknownst to the scribes, this omen actually is possible. It signifies that you live in Scandinavia. Van der Merup's conclusion is that the scribes were above all concerned with the play of meanings between linguistic signs, an interpretation which has the Babylonians not so much anticipating Plato and Aristotle by one millennium as Jacques Derrida by three millennia. Whatever we make of this, it is worth marking a distinction that Van de Merup typically glosses over, the difference between writing that takes an explicit stance on a philosophical issue and writing that only implicitly suggests such a philosophical stance. He says at one point that Hammurabi's code shows that he knew truth and we should thus read it as a work of epistemology. But this is surely an exaggeration, or to put it more bluntly, a mistake. A work of epistemology is not one that gives the reader to understand that the author has knowledge, or even has certain views about the nature of knowledge. A work of epistemology is a text that directly and explicitly raises and answers the question, what is knowledge? Nothing in the Babylonian written record seems to challenge Plato's claim to have been the first to write such works in dialogues like the Mino and Theaetetus. Van de Merup is closer to the mark when he elsewhere writes of the underlying epistemological principles of the texts he studies. The scribes do seem to have assumed that homonymy between two Sumerian words reveals a sympathetic connection between the things that the words signify, and that laws are an expression of justice and wisdom, more even than they are a practical guide to judges. Such assumptions are not stated outright, and certainly not established by argument, but they are nonetheless ideas that should interest the historian of philosophy. We would also contend, however, that van de Merup makes things more difficult on himself by passing over products of Babylonian literature that are more obviously philosophical in nature. As with the Upanishads of ancient India and the works of Plato in ancient Greece, so some of the more intriguing works of the Babylonians come in the form of dialogues. Consider, for example, the instructions of Supe Ameli, which is also known by the words that open the text, Sima Milka, meaning hear the advice. Here a father, the Supe Ameli of the title, gives advice to his son, much of it quite straightforwardly practical in nature. The son is advised to stay out of taverns, for example, and advice is given about where to dig a well within your field in order to avoid others mooching off you. If this were a normal instruction text, a standard entry in a genre found in both ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt, the end of the father's advice would be the end of the work. But in this case, the son talks back, and what he says puts into question the very point of the father's advice. He speaks of how all his father's riches will mean little when death comes, 
and about how life is short while death is long. Few are the days in which we eat our bread, but many will be the days in which our teeth will be idle, he says. Few are the days in which we look at the sun, but many will be the days in which we will sit in the shadows. Where the father offers practical tips for success in life, the son points to life's ephemeral nature. The father presents us with wisdom of old vintage, especially given that some of his advice is similar to that which can be found in older works like the instructions of Shurupak. But the son contests this age-old wisdom, critically reflecting on whether it actually helps us confront the true nature of mortal existence. Supe Amelie thus seems explicitly philosophical. It raises fundamental questions about how we ought to live, and indeed, which values we should even prioritize as we seek to answer that question. Another interesting work in dialogue format, featuring critical reflection on the meaning and value of life, is known as the Babylonian Theodicy. The word theodicy was invented by the early modern German philosopher Gottfried Leibniz to refer to attempts to deal with the so-called problem of evil. How can we reconcile the goodness of an all-knowing and all-powerful God with the existence of evil in the world? In the Babylonian theodicy, we have a dialogue between two friends, one of whom is complaining about hardship he has suffered. The sufferer asserts that devotion to the gods has not secured him well-being, bitterly adding that others in society experience great success despite their lack of piety. His friend, on the other hand, defends the justice of the gods and the importance of showing them due respect. The end of the dialogue depicts a narrowing of the gap between the positions, as the friend acknowledges that it is, after all, the gods who chose to create humans with a propensity for wrongdoing. The sufferer, meanwhile, acknowledges that, at the end of the day, he has no other choice but to continue to seek the mercy of the gods. The Babylonian theodicy is a rare case where we appear to know the name of the author of an ancient Mesopotamian text. It is written as an acrostic poem, with the initial syllables of the stanzas spelling out the following message. I, Sagal Kinam Ubib, an incantation priest, the one who worships the gods and the king. On the strength of this, Sagal Kinam Ubib can perhaps be recognized as one of the earliest philosophers who we know by name. Though that name is probably not familiar to you, the story he tells might well be. There are obvious similarities between the Babylonian theodicy and the book of Job, in which we also have a sufferer expressing his woes, and in the case of Job, multiple friends responding in ways that affirm the importance of piety even in the face of great misfortune. Another work from ancient Mesopotamia, with similarities to the book of Job, is the Poem of the Righteous Sufferer, again also known from its opening words, in this case, Lulul Bel Nempeki, or I Will Praise the Lord of Wisdom. Many suspect that such Mesopotamian texts influenced the Hebrew author of the Book of Job. It is only one of numerous cases where the Bible includes material that resonates with Babylonian literature. Another striking example is a flood myth, including an ark to preserve animals from extinction in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Speaking of which, we would be remiss if we failed to say something about this epic, by far the most famous work to survive from Babylonian culture. It is said to have been written by a scribe and priest by the name of Sin Lekiunani, but assuming this is true, compiled would be a more appropriate word than written, since the Akkadian version we have evidently draws on earlier myths, much as the Homeric epics and the Mahabharata took respectively from older Greek and Indian oral culture. As with those texts, a sign of its distant origins in oral culture is the repetition of catchphrases and whole passages, 
which would have made the poem easier to memorize. Unfortunately, the text is not preserved in its entirety. It is known from disparate clay tablets which do not present a continuous or complete narrative and are illegible in parts, so it's pretty far from being a history of Gilgamesh without any gaps. Still, the broad outlines of the story are clear. Gilgamesh is an unjust ruler who is brought to see sense through divine intervention, when a peer and ally is made for him by the name of Enkidu. Gilgamesh and Enkidu have a series of adventures, with Enkidu traveling as far as the underworld at one point, as with the story of Noah and the Flood, Homer's depiction of Odysseus traveling to Hades seems to be anticipated here by Sin Leke Unnini and his sources. As that part of the epic suggests, a major theme of the whole epic is death. Gilgamesh movingly laments the eventual passing of Enkidu, and the story also features a quest in search of the secret of immortality. By the standards of Van de Meerup, the epic is a work of epistemology, since it belabors the theme of privileged knowledge already in its opening lines referring to Gilgamesh as one who gained complete wisdom, found out what was secret and uncovered what was hidden, and brought back a tale of times before the flood. From the many other themes of philosophical interest that we could pick out from Gilgamesh, we'll focus just briefly on the political and anthropological ideas suggested by the material preserved on the first tablet. As we've said, Gilgamesh is initially presented as a tyrant, over-demanding of military service from his subjects' sons and of sexual service from their daughters. Of course, the behavior of Gilgamesh is itself a cautionary tale for any potentates among the poem's audience, and is implicitly contrasted to the example of the gods, who mercifully respond to pleas for intervention. Then comes the scene in which the goddess Aruru takes a piece of clay and creates from it Enkidu, who was described as follows. His whole body was shaggy with hair. He had a full head of hair like a woman. He knew neither people nor settled living. He ate grasses with the gazelles and jostled at the watering hole with the animals. As with animals, his thirst was slaked only with water. Gilgamesh hears of this wild man and realizes that in order to be domesticated, Enkidu has to be brought into contact with a woman. Sexual congress will initiate him into the world of human society. This tells us something about Babylonian gender politics, and also something of how they saw the border between animal and human. Only once he has mated with a woman, groomed himself, and eaten prepared food and drink, is Enkidu considered to be properly human. In fact, better than that, he is pronounced to be like a god. This first tablet ends on a familiar Babylonian note, citing Gilgamesh's prophetic dreams, which, along with tales of Gilgamesh's physical prowess, persuade Enkidu to become a much-needed friend and advisor instead of challenging the king in combat. In all, then, socialization and human intercourse, sexual and otherwise, are a dominant motif in this early part of the poem. One might hesitate to call the Epic of Gilgamesh a work of political philosophy, but it does seem to anticipate Aristotle's famous remark that the human is a political animal. Human nature is compatible with living like a wild beast, but fully realized only within the fold of human society. Ultimately, humans are the animals capable of receiving wisdom from the gods and of exercising just political rule in collaboration with their peers. This brief overview of Babylonian literature and its potential philosophical payoff has hopefully prepared us as we continue on our own epic journey. Next time, we return to Africa for a look at the contemporary literature produced by the ancient Egyptians. Be prepared for resonances with some of the themes we have just been discussing, not least the idea of human and cosmic justice. Be prepared, too, for the very real risk of pharaoh-related puns, 
whether they make you smile or just tut with disapproval. That's all here on the next installment of The History of Africana Philosophy. Thank <music> you.